This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Amen. Amen. So what a way to, uh, to kick off a new study this morning as we look at the life of David. We're going to spend about the next... Next couple of months, next eight weeks or so, uh, looking at this epic life. In fact, um, this morning, I, you know, we're talking about, when we talk about David's life, we're talking about something so huge that just kind of spans. Uh, I thought it would be good this morning to kind of just really set the stage for his life, to set the, the scene of David's life. So we're going to look at parts of chapters 8 through 13 of 1 Samuel. If you'll be making your way to 1 Samuel chapter 13 right now, what we're going to do this morning, so get your Bibles ready or want to hear those pages uh, turning or uh, those, your tablet or whatever, whatever you're using, those finger staffing, um, you're going to need to really, we're going to look at parts of, 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 uh, of like five or six different chapters this morning, really to, just to kind of get the lay of the land and set the stage, set the scene for the life of David. And just like Joseph's life, which we just looked at, there is so much here in this life that applies to our lives and that really just sets the stage for the, the coming of Jesus. And so let's look beginning this morning at chapter 13. We'll just look at a couple of uh, verses here in chapter 13. If you'll take your copy of God's word and follow along, let's, let's look at verses 13 and the beginning of verse 14 in 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 13. Let's pick it up here with verse, verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart. Let's pray. Fathers, we, we look at this, the life of this, this man that was a man after your own heart, your servant David. We pray that you would speak to us about our lives. Lord, it's, it's fascinating to look at human lives. And the life of David is certainly fascinating. Like the life of Joseph, it's, it's filled with all kinds of peaks and valleys and twists and, and turns. It's full of triumphs and victories, but also failure and sin. It's, it's real life. And, and we're seeking to live real, real lives for you. And we want to be people after your own heart. And so, Lord, will you use this series over these next weeks? Would you use it mightily in, in our own lives as we seek to live lives that are, that are honoring to you? Lord, would you speak to us even today 
as we kind of just set the stage for the life of David. There's so many things that we can learn from, from the prelude to that and from Saul's life and for even from the desire of the, of, of the people to have a king to, to begin with. Lord, would you use these next minutes greatly? Would you speak to us by the power of your spirit through your word? Would you strengthen your people? Lord, would you equip us to go out and to live for you this week on mission? And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I was working on a sermon a few weeks ago when I got a text from my wife Melissa and it was just three words in this text the queen died. And she didn't have to tell me which queen it, it, it was because she and I had really enjoyed watching the, the crown together and Melissa had read a biography of Queen Elizabeth and so we, we, we knew what, what, was, what was happening there and, 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 and who that was. And you know, it was kind of fascinating for us as Americans because we don't have a monarchy in our country and so it's been kind of fascinating to learn more about that, what, about the sovereign, about having a, a king or a queen or that kind of thing. But as believers, as followers of Christ, it's imperative for every single one of us to know that we do indeed live under a monarchy because Christ is our king. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And he deserves nothing less than our complete allegiance, our unqualified trust, and our joyful service. So as we open up this new series, Israel at this point in its history does not have a king, but they want one. Unfortunately, they want one for all the wrong reasons. And that's where we begin with Israel's sinful demand for a king. Now, it was not that it was wrong in and of itself for them to have a king. There wasn't anything that was, you know, unbiblical about the monarchy or anything like that. In fact, in the Old Testament law, it even provided for the fact that one day they may have a king. So it's not that that, that, that was sinful in and of itself to have a king. The problem was their motivation in desiring a king. Let's go back to chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 8, turn there. First Samuel 8, and let's check out verses 4 and 5. It says, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. Samuel's been providing leadership for them. And they said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same 
as all the other nations have. Does that sound like a problem? (laughs) That was absolutely a problem. Because you see, God had formed Israel not to be like all the other nations. God had formed Israel to be different from all the other nations, to be a distinct nation, a holy nation. You know, I'm, I'm kind of slow to get things sometimes, and so it took me a while to figure this out when I was growing up. But finally, it kind of dawned on me that when I wanted something from my mom or dad, and I began the conversation with, well, everybody else is doing it, um, kind of not very persuasive. See, they want a king because they want to be like everybody else. Give us a king so we can be like all the other nations. Big problem. The whole reason God forms Israel to begin with is so they can be distinct from the other nations, so that they can be different, stand out. In Leviticus chapter 20 and and verse 26, God says to Israel, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be mine. Well, the very meaning of holiness is seen in this verse because to be holy means to be set apart. And God had formed Israel to be different from the other nations so that they could be a light to the other nations. In Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6, God says to Israel, I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. In other words, Israel was to be a beacon, a light that would stand out to the other nations, not be like the other nations. And see, that's, that's just like us. God has called you and me to be holy people, to shine out in a dark world. So like Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15, God says, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. Listen, we live in a broken world It's a dark world out there. And and God has called us as his people to be holy, to be distinct, to shine like stars in in the darkness of our our culture. That was his calling for for Israel in the Old Testament. Now let's let's look again at 1 Samuel 8 and let's check out verses 6 and 7. When they said... Give us a king to judge us. Samuel considered their demand wrong, so he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. Now you get the feeling here that Samuel was somewhat personally stung by their request for a king. After all, he's been giving them uh, godly leadership. And so you get the feeling here, he's kind of personally uh, taken aback and stung by the fact that they're desiring a king. But God says to Samuel, hey, don't take this personally. (laughs) This is not about you. They're not really rejecting you. No, they're rejecting me. 
And that becomes super clear in what happens next. Look at chapter 8 and verses 19 and 20. Samuel has told the people, you say that you want a king, be careful what you wish for. Because you may like some things about it, but there be some things that you might not like. But what do they say to him? Verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. Yikes. Do you see that this is a rejection of God? Because what had God done for them? What had God done for Israel? But go before them and fight their battles. It was God who had delivered them from slavery in Egypt and God who had been with them every step of the way. He had been so faithful, so good to his people. He had continually gone before them. He had continually fought their battles when they would allow him to. And yet they say, no, we need a king so we can be like everybody else. He'll go before us. He'll fight our battles. Uh, how easily we forget the faithfulness of God. Yeah, I love um, the Jason Bourne movies. I like the Bourne identity more than any of them. That was the first one. That's when he wakes up and Matt Damon plays a CIA agent who, who wakes up and he's been injured in an operation and he wakes up and he's forgotten who he is, has amnesia. Sometimes we get spiritual amnesia. We forget who we are and we forget how faithful and good God has been to us. This is why it is so important to incorporate daily praise and thanksgiving into our prayer lives so that we're not just asking God for things. Yes, we should ask God for things. But coupled with that in our prayer lives should be healthy amounts of praise and thanksgiving to God for how good and how faithful he has been to us we so easily forget it and we see that in Israel here at this point so we see Israel's sinful demand for a king second we see the anointing of Saul the anointing of Saul now let's turn to chapter 9 first Samuel 9 and let's look there at the beginning of chapter 9 in verse 1, it says, There was a prominent man of Benjamin named Kish. Skip down to verse 2. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. I mean, if anybody looked the part of a king, it was Saul. He came right out of central casting for kings. But not only does Saul look the part of a king, but at first it seems like he has other stuff going for him that you would want a king to have, beginning with the fact that God had chosen him to be king. 
Look at chapter nine and, and verses 16 and 17. So God says here to Samuel, at this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He, he will save them from the Philistines because I have seen the affliction of my people for their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man I told you about. He will govern my people. And so God has chosen Saul. And not only, not only is he chosen by God, but at least at first, Saul seems to have other attributes that you would want in a king. Look at, um, look at chapter 9 and verse 21. Chapter 9 and verse 21. <clears throat> Saul tell, uh, Samuel tells Saul that God has chosen you to be king. What does Saul say? Saul responded, am I not a Benjaminite from the smallest of Israel's tribes? And isn't my clan the least important of all the clans of the Benjaminite tribe? So why have you said something like this to me? And so Saul shows humility here. He's like, who am I? Who am I, you know, that God would choose me? I come from this small tribe. I mean, who, how am I worthy for this honor? Isn't that what you would want in a king? You, you would want this kind of humility, right? Shows humility here. Not only that, but he shows, he shows some grace. Because after he becomes king, there were some people who didn't, who didn't they made it clear they didn't want him as king, and so they really disrespected him, dishonored him by refusing to send him gifts that you would typically give to a new king. How does, how does uh, Saul react to that? Look at chapter 10 and verses 26 and 27, the very end of chapter 10. Saul also went to his home in Gebeah, and brave men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But some wicked men said, how can this guy save us? They despised him and did not bring him a gift, but Saul said nothing. He refused to take vengeance on his enemies, on those who had disrespected him. So again, he is showing an attribute that you would want in a leader, which is some mercy and grace, along with humility. Now let's look at Saul's anointing. We see it at the beginning of chapter 10. Look at chapter 10 and verse 1. Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it out on Saul's head, kissed him, and said, hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Now, this is very important because we see here that the authority of the king is not his own, but it comes from the ultimate king. Hasn't the Lord anointed you? This week I was talking with one of our, one of our, our folks uh, with IMB who lives in, in London. And so we were talking about the, the, the death of the, of the queen and all of the different events and the service and everything uh, for her. 
And this brother really is, is plugged in with, with a lot of the, the Bible-believing Christians and, and pastors that are, that are there in London. And, and, and listen, it was just commonly known among the Bible-believing Christians uh, in, 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 in London and pastors, it was commonly known that the Queen, that queen Elizabeth loved the Lord. She loved the Lord. She was just a, she was queen, but she was a humble, Bible-reading, praying Christian. She loved preaching. And, and my friend was telling me that he's, he is friends with a Scottish pastor. And this guy had the opportunity one time to, to preach, and Queen Elizabeth was in the congregation. And he preached on the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. And after the service, the queen came up to him and she complimented him on the message and she said, she said, I want Jesus to return soon so I can take my crown and lay it at his feet. Wow. That's what, that's what we see here in chapter 10 and verse one. It's the, the Lord is anointing, right? And so the, the king his authority comes under the king of kings. Queen Elizabeth understood that. Not sure how well King Saul understood that, as will become clear. But at first, it looks good. It looks good. Check out verse 6, chapter 10 and verse 6. Samuel says to him, The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully on you, you will prophesy with them and you will be transformed. So to be king of Israel, it's not just a political thing, it was a spiritual thing. And so we, we see here that not only was there this outward anointing with oil, but there seems to have been a spiritual anointing as well. And, and that becomes clear as, as chapter 10 goes along. Look at verses 9 and following in chapter 10. When Saul returned, turned to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all the signs came about that day. When Saul and his servant arrived at, 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 at Gibeah, a group of prophets met them. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully on him, and he prophesied along with them. Everyone who knew him previously and saw him prophesy with the prophets asked each other, what has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And so, you know, not only was there this outward anointing, but there was an inward anointing. There was a spiritual anointing for this task Everything seems to be going well. And it gets even better. Because in chapter 11, the Ammonites attack Israel. And Saul, trusting God, he leads the people to a great victory. And things are going so well that at the end of chapter 11, the people come and notice what they say in verse 12. Chapter 11 and verse 12. They've just, God's given this great victory over the Ammonites. And it says, afterward, the people said to Samuel, who said that Saul should not reign over us? Give us those men so that we can kill them. They're like, you know, this is such a great king. 
you know, and we've got these people who disrespected him and didn't want him to reign. We want to kill these people. But again, Saul shows grace. Look at verse 13. But Saul ordered, no one will be executed this day, for today the Lord has provided deliverance in Israel. Now again, is this not what you would want in a king? He's showing magnanimity magnanimity and and, and grace. You know, he's like, no, we're not going to take vengeance here on people. We're not going to execute these people. We're just going to praise God for his goodness and what he's done. At the end of at the end of, of chapter 11, you have the summary statement in verses 14 and, and 15 that just kind of uh, encapsulate how good things are going. It says, then Samuel said to the people, come, let's go to Gilgal so that we can renew the kingship there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there in the Lord's presence they made Saul king. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence, and Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Everything is going great. God has been so good. The people are praising the Lord. This new king seems to have the character, the godly character that you would desire in a king. Never, ever underestimate the ability of human beings with our sin to mess things up. This is why the scripture tells us again and again and again and again, stay awake, stay alert. I was just reading in my quiet time yesterday, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, stay awake and alert. Stay awake and alert during the bad times, during trials, because the enemy can just beat you up and discourage you but also stay awake and alert and close to Jesus in the good times when things seem to be going right because that's when we can become complacent and drift. The third thing that we see here is the failure of man. The failure of man. Saul begins well but it's not about how you begin, is it? It's how you finish. On my recent trip, we were riding in the car one day and was talking with some pastors and missionaries about different influences on our lives, different people who would influence our lives spiritually. And I was thinking back on, you know, People that even during seminary, I remember Melissa and I, I went to a Bible conference and, uh, you, you know, and different preachers and everything. And the, and, the, and the two preachers that made the biggest influence on me at that point in my life, neither of them are in ministry today because of sexual sin. 
And then shortly after we got married, we went to another big uh, conference, and, and the guy who made the biggest impact there, same thing, same thing. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. But sexual sin is just one, one way that the enemy takes leaders out. And he uses other things in, in Saul's life. So in chapter 13, the Philistines attack Israel in great numbers. Well, you know what? That was not a problem for God. God's not intimidated by numbers. One man or one woman plus God is enough. God had given them victory after victory after victory when they were outnumbered. Wasn't a problem for him. But what happens? The Philistines attack in great numbers and fear sets in. Chapter 13, and let's look at uh, verses 5 through 7. The Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel, 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Verse 6, the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a, a difficult situation. They hid in caves and thickets among rocks and holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. Now at this point, when the troops are freaking out and gripped with fear, what do you need in the leader? Not to be freaking out and gripped with fear. You need calm in the leader. You need Trust in God on the part of the leader. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that faith is the refusal to panic. But what does Saul do here? He panics because he doesn't trust God. And what does he do? Chapter 13 and, and verses 8 and 9. He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Then he offered the burnt offering. Houston, we have a problem. This is a massive problem because it wasn't his role to offer those offerings, and he knew it, but he panics. And just at that moment, Samuel shows up, and we see in verse 10, just as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. So Saul went out to greet him, and Samuel asked, what have you done? Samuel knows the enormity the catastrophe that has happened. What have you done? Well, Saul has an answer, and it's a pretty lame answer. Saul answered, when I saw that the troops were deserting me, and, and you didn't come within the appointment, blame Samuel, right? Blame game. And you didn't come 
Within the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, I thought, the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal, and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. He spiritualizes things, right? He's got this lame excuse. He has to put a spiritual twist on it. I thought the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal, and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Well, this is, this is not going to, this is not fooling anybody. It's not fooling the Lord. It's not fooling Samuel. And Samuel says to Saul, verse 13, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart. And that was David. That's where we're going. I want to see one more thing this morning, and that's the faithfulness of God. We see the failure of man, but I want to see the faithfulness of God. So back in chapter 12, Samuel has given this final address to the people. He's wrapping up his time of leadership. They're about to get a king. And Samuel addresses them as, for a final time. And Samuel rebukes them. He takes them to task for their sins and for their failure to trust God, and the Spirit of God works. They are cut to the heart. They are convicted by what they've done. They're convicted by the very fact that they have requested a king. And so we see in chapter 12 and verse 19, they pleaded with Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we won't die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of requesting a king for ourselves. Now you have to expect that Samuel at this point is going to say, oh yeah, you've blown it. You guys are in deep weeds. I warned you, you didn't listen. And now you're going to get what's coming to you. But instead, Samuel gives them this beautiful word of grace. And we see it in verses 20 through 22 of chapter 12. Samuel replied, don't be afraid. Even though you have committed all this evil, don't turn away from following the Lord. Instead, worship the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn away to follow worthless things that can't profit or rescue you. They are worthless. The Lord will not abandon his people because of his great name and because he has determined to make you his own people. Wow. So first of all here, in verses 20 and 21, Samuel is saying to them, he says, look, yes, you sinned. You messed up. Don't be afraid. Turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. Repent. Turn from following these worthless things that will never profit you. These things are worthless. 
Turn from them. Turn from them. You've got today. This is not a time for you to wallow in self-condemnation that's not going to do anybody any good. There's no time for that. No, turn to the Lord now. Now, yes, your past is messed up. We understand that. Turn to God right now, today. Turn now, turn to him. It's urgent. He's giving them hope, right? It's kind of like, kind of like Paul does in Philippians 3, you know, 13 and 14. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Remember that before he became a Christian, Paul had had Christians thrown into prison and murdered. But he wasn't gonna, he wasn't gonna live in the past forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to what lies ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm pursuing the face of God. I'm pursuing Christ with all my heart, not looking back. And God calls us to do the same. On my trip a few weeks ago, I was in an airport in the Middle East, <laughs> and I was waiting in a line, <laughs> and I looked up and I saw this sign, and I thought, this has got to come out in a sermon without a doubt. Because the sign says, excess baggage disposal. A lot of us are carrying around a lot of baggage that we need to get rid of. Get rid of your excess baggage. Lay it aside. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. Lay aside every weight, lay aside that baggage that you're carrying around. That sin that you need to unload. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Get back in the race. Run that race. And so Samuel is telling the people that for sure in verses 20 and 21. But now look at verse 22. First Samuel 12, 22. He says this. The Lord will not abandon his people because of his great name and because he has determined to make you his own people. In other words, the bottom line is that God will not forsake you. God will not abandon you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. God's commitment to his own name to his own glory. He will be faithful. Because that's who he is. And he cannot deny himself. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. For his mercies never end. 
They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to your own name. Lord, we thank you that despite all of our sin and at times our wishy-washiness and our vacillation and the fact that we just stumble along and don't get things right, that you were faithful, that you will not abandon us because of who you are. Lord, we pray that you would impart hope this morning. As we just continue to pray, listen, you could have come this morning barely hanging on. May you understand the Lord's great love for you, that you were in his grip, and that nothing can snatch you out of his hand if you are in Christ. Do you know him today? Do you know Christ Have you turned to Christ as your Savior and Lord and King? We're all sinners. We all desperately need a Savior. There's a Savior who took your sins upon himself, my sins upon himself, lived the perfect life that we could never live, died the death we should have died in our place for our sins, rose from the dead, defeating death for all who will trust in him so that we can have eternal life. That's the good news of the gospel. Make that your good news. Turn to Christ. Trust in him. And live in the light of his great faithfulness. And so, Lord, we praise you for who you are and your great love and your mercies that never come to an end. Your great in the name of Jesus. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. 
We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.